welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me wherever you are. I hope you're keeping well. Apologies for not publishing an episode last week. Um, that was just a computer hitch uh, and just messed my whole uh, publishing schedule up, unfortunately. But uh, seems to be back in, back in business. A reminder that Voices from SA now has a Patreon site. If you go to Patreon forward slash Voices from SA, please donate as you see fit. Um, I'm asking for the price of a coffee or two per episode. A little bit more if you can spare. Um, And I am considering some options, some bonus material options for patrons, so listen out for that as well. I was in Cape Town last week and I took the opportunity to conduct a couple of interviews. The first of these is a chat with Father Michael Lapsley, an Anglican priest. He moved to South Africa in 1973 to continue his training with an order of the Anglican Church. In 1976 he was sent into exile by the apartheid government. Um, Three months after the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990 he was blown up by a letter bomb sent by members, a member of the Civil Cooperation Bureau and Apartheid Era Death Squad. He lost both hands and an eye in that attack. We talked about his early work ministering to students in South Africa. He started in Durban. Um, his journey from pacifist to freedom fighter, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the work of his organization, the Institute for Healing of Memories, that he founded in 1998 spoke about how he's become a citizen of the world, his identity shaped by listening to the pain of the human family. Please now enjoy my chat with Father Michael. Do I call you Father or Michael? Either. Father Michael. (laughs) Father Michael. Father Michael, thanks uh, very much for your time this morning. Um... I took a chance actually when I knew I was coming down to Cape Town and as I explained, I like to at least take some advantage of me being outside of Johannesburg to to meet people. Um, my contact with you was sparked by an article I read uh, in the Daily Maverick. It would have been last week, I think, um, that you wrote in response to some comments by F.W. de Klerk that I'm not even sure came about where he 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 said something incredibly silly to the to the around the the idea that apartheid wasn't a crime against humanity um could you just maybe take us through um your reaction to that you having obviously been a victim of the crimes of 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 fw de Klerk's forces in particular well, I'd long come to the conclusion that F.W. de Klerk is the great denialist in terms of uh, moral, political responsibility um, for so much death and dying, um, including, in my case, including in my case, um, so like so many South Africans, uh, for me it was completely outrageous that all these years later he was still denying that um, apartheid was a crime against humanity. And when he was called out by the EFF, uh, part of me was glad it happened despite the fact that I, I, I thought um, Malema's behavior and the state of the nation was unacceptable and reprehensible. And yet there was this dimension of saying, yes, but uh, de Klerk has uh, never really been held to account for what he was uh, party to. Mm. Um, and in my case, when I gave evidence to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I said that FW was politically and morally responsible 
indeed for my bombing and and my reasoning was very was very simple uh, that I was bombed by a uh, death squad that was part of the machinery of the state and he was the head of state at the time and I'd been told by the late uh, Frederick von Slabert that he personally went to the clerk and talked to him about the death squads and it took another four years before they were disbanded. Mm. Uh, and that's why I, I, I said what I did. Um, but of course, his response was to say, I saw nothing. Um, I, I knew nothing. Yeah. And, and to deny uh, responsibility. So, I mean, you would, I mean, do you feel some kind of, I'm not sure if sympathy is the right word, but I mean, he's obviously not a complete human being then in some respects well for me the the tragedy of de Klerk was the the lack of moral stature um, and many people have been writing recently suggesting that um, his decisions that culminated in the release of Nelson Mandela and then banning of organizations was was in a sense about real politic. Yeah. It was not about... Um, Any kind of Damascian moment. He didn't see the Lord on the road to Damascus and, uh, and say, actually, this was fundamentally evil. Mm. Um, and and, um, and if, he had, if he had done that, and he'd been able to assist the white community um, as a leader to say, actually, we were party to evil. We need to repent. We need to atone. We need to make it up. Mm. I think we we would be in a very different position as a country. Interesting, than, yes. Than we are. Yeah. Um, because in a way, because he was the great denialist, um, he's helped many white people up till today to the, deny their culpability, mm. complicity um, with the evil of apartheid, but not just the evil, the suffering, yeah. the, 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 the dying, yeah. the degradation and humiliation yeah. that went on for uh, generations. Decades. And it seems his line uh, at the time was to say that apartheid wasn't fundamentally evil, um, but it 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 um, it was in its in in its conception, but in the way it operated was problematic, um, and of course to claim that there were um, some bad apples who behaved badly, um, but that's also uh, the uh, the attempt to whitewash and and, and to deny. Um, his own culpability, especially as he came from the, the right wing of the National Party um, and was a believer always of in the project. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and then, of course, uh, in the negotiating period, the period in which, uh, beginning of which is when I was bombed, there was a huge scale of death and dying yes. uh, because it's clear that the apartheid state had decided to negotiate in the daytime, but they continued to kill at night. Mm. Uh, and so we lost some of the biggest numbers of, 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 of deaths took place precisely during that period. Indeed, indeed. Um, you were, uh, there's a couple of things there. Um, because you're a, you're, a, you're a victim of that overt uh, violence of the apartheid system. You were blown up. Um, and I wanted to, to speak a little bit about that, if I may, or ask you about that, if I may. Um, it only, I only um, in just doing a little bit of research now, um, before I came to see you uh, over the last couple of days, realized that you were actually, you seem to be quite a, a target. I mean, you're, you're an Anglican priest, um, but there was, there'd been an effort to um, attack you in Lesotho uh, before you were actually bombed in, in, in Zimbabwe. Um, 
two things. You were you were you were you were you were attacked after the ANC Nelson Mandela had been released from prison. So a process of supposed change, transformation, de-escalation had supposedly begun. Um, and also, so there's a kind of maliciousness there, and I'm just wondering just in your mind how you sort of deal with that, but also that you were such a, like you were really one of the sort of key targets of that regime. And I'm just wondering what that says about that regime. Well, I, I, I don't know that, in fact, I was a target in uh, Lesotho. Um, some of the church authorities believed I was. Okay. Uh, of course, I was away at the time of the massacre, and they're, they're, they said that if I was to remain in Lesotho, then the troops could come back um, and, and, uh, in order to, to, to kill me. Um, when I lived in uh, Zimbabwe, the... Zimbabwean authorities came to me and they said, uh, we have information that you're on a South African government hit list. Um, and because of that, I had armed police guards 24 hours a day oh, for, wow. for several years. Mm. And those armed guards were, were then taken away um, once there was the agreement to uh, negotiate. But of course, it, it, it's a speculative question. Um, why was I a target? You know, I, I was not a, a gun runner. Mm. Uh, I was a priest mm. know, working in the liberation movement. Mm. Uh, and my work in the liberation movement was um, pastoral, caring for people in exile, uh, educational, assisting with the education of exiles from Christ University, and theological. Uh, and the theological work was the work of unmasking, delegitimizing the claim of the apartheid regime to be to be Christian. Yeah, exactly. So I worked all over the world and in a sense what I was saying um, was that apartheid was a choice or an option for death carried out in the name of the gospel of life. Mm. Um, and and uh, so my conclusion is that it was my theology that was a threat yeah. uh, to the to the apartheid state. Your um, your your philosophy, your your mind. Well, 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 not so much my philosophy for my mind, but what I was doing to mobilize faith communities across the world mm. to 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 help people to see that apartheid was not simply a human rights issue, a justice issue, a political issue, but it was also a faith issue mm. because it was in the name of Christian faith yes. that the apartheid regime did what it did. Mm. And even up to the last white constitution in the preface talked about being guided by God from generation to generation. So claiming divine guidance. Mm. Um, so that work of... Uh, if you like removing that mask from them and showing it for what it was, so I think also you know the regime, and in a sense we've seen this in the latest statement of de Klerk, when he uses word I never heard of about Ajit Prop, that um, this was mm. communist propaganda. So we were back to the Roy Kavar, and, yeah. and instead of saying, look, we're a group of. Uh, white racists committed to um, denying the humanity of our fellow citizens. They rather said, um, you know, we, we are a group of white Christians defending Western Christian civilization. Um, and and uh, so, again, it's that unmasking that was, um, mm. you know, a threat to the state. And the mm. fact that, that I was uh, an Anglican priest, what could be more respectable than that? Mm. Of course, it's also true that the regime hated those of us who are white uh, as well. They expected black people to be against them, but they considered people like ourselves to be uh, traitors to the white race. Mm. And I suppose the fact that you were not even South African coming to meddle in our affairs was another 
anathema. Yes, I mean, I think there's that kind of uh, resentment as well. Mm. Um, and But of course, it's it's also been true without, through our history in South Africa. There were there have always been um, a number of people who came from other lands and who made common cause with the people of South Africa. Mm. Um, and I realized myself that soon after I came to South Africa, I, I would need to either go home or make it home. Um, mm. If I was to have the right, the moral right, to participate in a, a life and death struggle. struggle. So yeah. for me, uh, the commitment became an irrevocable commitment, a mm. permanent commitment mm. yeah. to travel with the people as long as it took. How did that come about? You, you, if we can just go back a little further, you, you, you're born and raised in, in New Zealand, um, which I imagine, I mean, I'd, I've never traveled to New Zealand. I was in Australia about 20 years ago in Melbourne, and I felt like I was in Peter Maritzburg in 1980. It kind of just felt sort of like stuck in some sort of time warp. So I can't really even imagine what New Zealand might have been back uh, in, in, in sort of 50s and 60s when you grew up, but hardly a hotbed of um, radical idealism, I imagine. What, what sort of sparked your interest in South Africa and, and drove you to, to look for meaning uh, here in, in, in South Africa? The, 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 um, when I was, um, I suppose, I'm sure seven, eight years old, uh, there was a petition in our local Anglican church. And the petition was no Maoris, no tour. Hmm. Because the the, 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 the uh, Springboks invited the All Blacks to come to South Yes, Africa. was that 1970? No, much earlier than that. Okay. Um, and uh, it was on one condition that the Maori players be left behind. Hmm. Um, so in that petition, brought by the local priest, was issues of faith and justice race and racism, uh, South Africa, New Zealand, all tied up in that, mm. with that petition. So that's my introduction to South Africa. Hmm. Um, uh, the next introduction was when I was, was about 14 or 15, reading Trevor Huddleston's uh, Not right. For Your Comfort, yes. um, which in a way was the kind of text that, that in some ways blew the whistle in the English-speaking world uh, onto, as to what was really happening. Uh, in South Africa, um, but but putting those and also um, so the issue of race, racism, and justice, um, and faith were were part of what shaped me mm. from the beginning. Um, but I had no intention of coming to South Africa. I was about going to the monastery, mm -hmm. being a priest. Yeah. So at the age of 17, I left New Zealand to go to Australia to train to be a priest and to join a religious order of the Anglican Church. And it was my order that made the decision uh, in 1973, when I'd just been ordained as a priest, to come to South Africa to study. You know? oh, wow. And not with any awareness, as far as I know, that I had any particular feelings about South Africa. Huh. And so... Uh, and what was the purpose of that study, or what were, what was the the thinking behind sending you to South well, Africa to study in the first place? Simply that my uh, my congregation had been working in South Africa since 1902, and mm -hmm. we were involved in the university chaplaincy uh, in Durban, right. um, and. Uh, it was quite normal in terms of formation. Of a cycle uh, of your training. I, that I should do further studies. Right. Uh, and so it was a convenient place to go, uh, yeah. to go to Durban and be part of the university chaplaincy and to study there. And then that transition then from priest to, dare I say, I mean, you, you have referred to yourself as a freedom fighter. Um, how and when does that happen? I think before I, I came to South Africa, I had a lot of head knowledge about South Africa. Um, and I suppose in my naivety, I thought I'd find three groups of people in South Africa, the oppressed, the oppressor, and the third group called the human race. 
mm. uh, that I would belong to. Uh, mm. And so I'm an Anglican. You know, I, I think that it's important to sit on the fence. Um, <laughs> maybe a little on the rich side, but the fence nevertheless. And in a way, my discovery was there was no fence. Mm. Um, that uh, that being white meant that I was part of the oppressive group. I could be against apartheid, but I was being against it from the side of those who were benefiting from mm. it. So for me, whiteness became like leprosy. Mm. I sort of felt if I, you know, washed off and enough, maybe the whiteness would disappear and I could become a human being again. So for me, joining the liberation struggle was about joining a struggle to uh, recover my own humanity in solidarity with black people, struggling for their own basic human rights. Uh, but when I came to South Africa, I was also a, a committed pacifist. Um, and so, you know, I, I had thought my father was mistaken to fight in the war against Hitler as a Christian. Wow. Um, the, the, uh, so in the South African context, that meant saying to uh, black people, if you're Christian, you're not going to use the force of arms to achieve your basic rights. Hmm. Saying to white people, if you're Christian, you're not going to use arms to prevent to your fellow citizens from achieving your rights. Hmm. And of course, that conversation was an illegal conversation. It was illegal to say to a young white male, you should consider not going to the army. But it was really in the events mm. of 1976, the killing of school children, that my pacifism fell apart. And mm. I came to the uh, reluctant conclu conclusion that in our context, with our history, that armed struggle had become morally legitimate, necessary, mm. and justified. Mm. So then you were, as I understand it, you were kind of then, around 1976, declared an enemy of the state and sent into well, I mean, exile? I, because I was, uh, at that stage, uh, I, I had become the national chaplain of Anglican students across the country. Um, and uh, because I also had a student visa, it was very simple just to cancel my visa, hmm. uh, which is what they did. Uh, and I was given 14 days to leave the country. Hmm. Um, and it Were was, you a member of the ANC by that time? No, no, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't a member of the ANC. And, and um, I uh, only spoke about my acceptance of the legitimacy of the armed struggle after I had left South Africa. Okay. So I, I went to uh, live in Lesotho, uh, where my community also had been working since 1912. Okay. Yeah. Um, and continuing my study, but it was there that I applied to join the ANC, and uh, I felt that the apartheid government was a Ill morally illegitimate government, mm. and the ANC were legitimate representatives of people of South struggle, Africa. Yeah. So I understood that by becoming a member, I was taking citizenship in a country for which we were still struggling. Mm. And you were how old then? Uh, well, I was I was born in 1949, so you can do the arithmetic. Okay. Yeah, cheapest. Yeah, that was a tumultuous time, I suppose, for the ANC as well. Sort of getting to grip with the fallout of the student um, uprising in South Africa and having to um, sort of re um, regalvanize itself. Yes, with the well, of course, thousands of young people left South Africa, yeah. uh, falling into two broad groups: those who came out seeking uh, education, and those who came out for uh, to join the armed struggle mm. as well, um, and 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 in their thousands as well. And yes. Lesotho was one of the places that people came as well, uh, and of course, subsequently, uh, and have had to travel back through the country to get out to. Swaziland or Botswana or Mozambique um, right, to join the ANC. Yes, okay, you couldn't sort of fly out. There were, there were uh, some were able to fly out. There were uh, weekly f uh, flights and small planes that flew uh, to Swaziland and to Mozambique mm. uh, as well. Mm. Um, I'm just now... If we can discuss um, a little bit 
if we may, um, the TRC, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, that, if I'm not mistaken, was that 95 or 96 it began its... It was about 95 began. It began its, um, yeah. began its um, deliberations uh, or hearings. Um, you you um, appeared at the the TRC sort of testifying on your on your experience and on your attack, um, the Civil Cooperation Bureau. Um, did you ever manage to identify or get the name of of the people who, name or names of the people who ordered the attack on you? Well, uh, no. It's a short answer. When I went to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I said I would like them to find out uh, who sent me the bomb. Um, and uh, why did they send it, and what was the chain of command? Mm. Uh, to this day, we don't have an answer to any of those questions. Yeah. Uh, of course, as I said earlier, I said I held uh, to clerk politically and morally responsible. Yeah. But who were the, who made the bomb? Who gave the orders? Mm. Why they did? Uh, yeah. And why they did at that time? Yes. Uh, is also a question. Really? Was, was it? How, was it simply um, apartheid operatives who still had unfinished business, yeah. who who didn't really accept the uh, the new period of negotiations, yeah, or yeah. was or always had people, their eye on you? And some people said it was an attempt to scupper the uh, the talks. I mean, the reality is that this, the talks had become unstoppable. Sure, but but nevertheless, some people speculated mm. on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you. I suppose you. Uh, well, I'll, I'll ask you. I mean, why did you? Why did you go to the TRC? Um, I. I uh, mean, unlike many uh, people who had become victims, uh, who were telling their story for the first time, it was not the first time. I told my story many times. But I felt that this commission that had been set up by our first democratic government meant that my story was becoming a kind of indelible part of the story of the people of South Africa. It was having that kind of recognition and validity and part of also the restoration of the moral order. You know, when people are victimized, uh, the moral order is, inver is inverted. Good is called bad, and bad is called good. So, so, mm. so here was this commission um, that had that legitimacy. Yeah, hearing my story, recognizing it, acknowledging the wrong that had been done to me. So it had its own uh, significance. Uh, it was an important moment for me to be able to say, "This is my story," and also so much of. The worst things under apartheid were done under the cover of darkness. And so there was an importance of coming into the light mm. and, 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 and the nation uh, hearing it uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, it must have been such a a moment for you. I mean, I, I, I've read somewhere, you know, your initial reactions to your attack, you know, your anger and your, your um, sort of desire or you know, think thoughts of of revenge and 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 dare I say hatred um, that you managed to transform into something completely well, different. Yeah, I, uh, what you're saying is not quite true. Um, for 14 years before the bomb went off, I had travelled the world as part of the struggle against apartheid. Um, <coughs> And, and and so when I was bombed, there were uh, messages of prayer, love, and support from all across the globe. Uh, it's like everyone I'd ever met in the previous 14 years sent a message. Hmm. Um, so from immediately, my story was acknowledged, reverenced, recognized. People said, what happened to me it was wrong. So hatred was never really part of the story. Um, I, I, I've always had some anger towards the uh, political leaders of the old order and their denial of responsibility, the way they've 
you know, often let the foot soldiers take the rap and not take responsibility mm. for themselves. Mm. Um, you know, ha losing your no hands is is something that affects every minute of every day. So, so mm. um, there's some moments of frustration where uh, I struggle sometimes to do very simple things. Um, but I think for me, the dominant emotion is grief. That is, I think when you lose your limbs, it's like when you lose a loved one, that the grief is in some respects permanent, mm. or, or should I say, it's a permanent dimension of, of, of who you are. Um, but hatred, bitterness, desire for revenge has never really been mm. uh, part of the picture. Um, but the way I like to put it is to say, I was accompanied by the peoples of the world on my journey of healing. And then I began to discover a new calling. And the new calling was to accompany others yes. on their journey of healing yeah. and, and recognizing that for millions of South Africans, unlike me, their stories had not been acknowledged and reverenced and recognized. Mm -hmm. Often all people had was their, their, their victimhood. And coming back to South Africa after 16 years away, I, I came to the conclusion that we were a damaged nation, damaged in our humanity, damaged by what we'd done, by what had been done to us, and by what we failed to do. And all of us carrying stuff inside of us because of the journey we traveled as part of this nation. Yeah. And are still, it seems, traveling and are still quite damaged. Well, I think, in a sense, the, 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 the response to what the clerk said tells us something about how close to the surface our wounds are, the ways in which we are still a very much a wounded nation and we're mm. still in many respects infected totally. by the things that have uh, happened to us. Yeah. Which I is mean, why I believe we, we need, uh, uh, it, it's a sign that we need uh, an intergenerational uh, national conversation um, about healing and justice mm. and how healing connects to struggles for justice. Uh, I just want to reflect um, before I go, because uh, I do want to know, that's a nice uh, segue now into the Institute for Healing of, of Memories uh, that you that you formed uh, some time ago. But just to reflect on, again, um, sort of multifaceted um, insidiousness of apartheid that wasn't, as you say, sort of, this um, killing in the in the night, you know, that overt military violence, but also just the structure that separated families, that broke up um, the country into homelands, that um, put people into schools that were not meant to to educate. All of those things that we still are um, dealing with. Today, I, I think, it, I mean, you know, in 1948, the National Party comes to power, but in some respects, we need to look over the last 300 years and see what kind of society we, we was created. Mm. Um, and and uh, obviously, you know, one way of characterizing uh, apartheid was political oppression and economic exploitation. Well, in a sense, we slayed one monster of, of political oppression. Said, so, okay, everybody can have the vote, but the uh, economic consequences remain glaringly obvious to today. But also yeah. the the spiritual dimension. I I, I sometimes feel that the uh, what the spiritual damage caused by apartheid um, is, is the most profound because it it it, it denied that we are. We like that everyone is somebody that we have that we have value simply because we're human beings, and I think that uh, profoundly damaged people of color, but it also damaged white people as well yeah. uh, and their humanity yeah. because of the way in which uh, evil was carried out uh, in their name on their behalf and often with their uh, con and then with their consent uh, as well and participation. Mm. You formed the Institute for Healing of Memories in 1998. Yes. Um, could you give us some background uh, to the thinking behind behind well, that? 
uh, when I, uh, a year after I came back uh, to South Africa, I became one of the first two employees of a trauma center for victims of violence and torture. Uh, and I spent five years as chaplain there. And it was also the period where uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, was being discussed and, 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 and evolving. Um, and so um, uh, one of the conclusions I had was that all South Africans were damaged by apartheid. Uh, all South Africans had a story to tell but the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was going to give a platform for, for some, not for all. I mean, 23,000 people came forward and told their stories. Mm. But I mean, what are we today? 55 million people. And, and if you can just think of one example, um, more than 3 million people were forcibly removed from their homes under apartheid. But none of those stories qualified to come to the commission mm. because the commission was dealing with murder, torture, yes. and what was described as severe uh, maltreatment. Yeah. Um, so, so my view was, as the TRC was approaching, that we needed to create what I would call safe and sacred spaces, where people could deal with what they had inside them as a consequence of the, uh, of the nation's journey. Mm. Um, so, the... the, 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 the oh, People, uh, so in a way, the the, the um, uh, institute was born out of my reflection on the nation's journey, but also my reflection on what had helped me to heal as well. Yes, exactly. Um, and so then we developed with other colleagues, we developed this methodology that we called the healing of the memories, um, uh, a particular form of experiential workshop that has continued mm. to be the heart of yes. the of the work that we do. Yeah. Um, I want to go into a little bit more detail. Um, just again, I suppose, um, because you have the two sort of streams, there's the healing of the memories and there's the restoring humanity sort of uh, methodology as well. Is that correct? Um, so if we could just maybe discuss um, each of those and how they're different, what their, their, their purposes, their two separate purposes are. Sure. The the um, well, <clears throat> um, one of the things that happened early on in the life of the uh, institute was uh, a number of young people coming to the institute, uh, participating in our workshops, and there were uh, those um, young people who came directly because of their trauma. They came for healing of memories. They came to deal with this stuff. There was another group of young people who came who said. Uh, to us, mum and dad don't talk about what happened. We, we, we want to understand mm. what happened under apartheid. Um, and so I was inspired a little bit by an organization in the, called, in the United States called Facing History, Facing Ourselves, which, which was started by a group who were trying to look at the kind of choices that led to the Holocaust and what kind of choices do we need to make to create a different kind of society. So then it, um, we, we then uh, recreated with my colleague Fatima Swartz um, uh, this program for young people again called Restoring Humanity, mm. um, which is about learning about and from the past, giving them spaces to deal with their own woundedness, but also to engender a, a commitment to a human rights culture as well, to, to, to be part of building... Um, Again, through a lot of uh, popular education and uh, experiential learning, um, to, to 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 deepen a commitment to uh, being part of a human rights culture and have and uh, building a human rights culture and having agency themselves as young people, mm. who often suffer um, from the intergenerational legacy of of apartheid. Yeah, exactly. Um, but. In the, with the healing of memories, as the years passed, we, 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 we began to, uh, for example, the HIV AIDS pandemic was ravaging the country. And we said, well, what's our contribution? Um, we said, well, it's not about safe sex. It's not about antiretrovirals. It's going to be about the stories, people dealing with stigma and rejection. Um, and equally, 
from early on, we've worked with uh, refugees and asylum seekers mm. who have their own stories of yeah. what brought them to South Africa and often the way they've been treated in South Africa as well, both beautifully and horribly uh, as well. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, and then we've also continued to work in, 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 in prisons um, where, you know, a high proportion of people who end up in prison uh, who have done terrible things to others have often had terrible things done to them. Mm. as well so it's about how do you break that, that cycle, cycle yeah. but early on we also worked with um, ex-competents military veterans um, and that has recently come back into focus mm. um, we've worked for quite a few years with military veterans in the United States um, but more recently some of the military veterans approached us and said please can you assist us um, and these are a few like uh, those of the rank and file are not the not the big names, not the right. the, uh, the the Mandela's, Just the foot soldiers, the, the foot soldiers, the literal foot soldiers who still who still um, are affected uh, by the wars there. Uh, and is this from both sides? Of on the... all sides, on hmm. all sides, on all sides. Yeah. So the um, I say all sides because there were. Uh, Obviously, there was the South African Defence Force, but there was also the Bantustan Forces, sure. Transkei Defence Force, mm-hmm. uh, Police, was, whatever. Uh, Police. Were, there was APLA, uh, mm. uh, uh, yes. a whole range of uh, formations as well. Right. Uh, yeah. And there's a particular um, veterans village that some of them are living in today in Cape Town. And so we've begun to work with people in that village who have there all sides of the of, oh, wow. of the conflict, seeking to find out how to live together. Huh. Uh, but but, but also, and working with them, we've been um, we've taken them through these processes of healing of memories uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, where do you see us as a nation? Um, you having lived through the struggle, having lived now through the negotiation period, through the TRC, your sort of return from exile to where we are today, um, how do you reflect on the last 25 years of our democracy? Well, um, especially in the first years, there were many uh, beautiful things that happened. I mean, I think creating this extraordinary constitution and many of the institutions we created um, have have uh, been in the have been uh, inspiring to not just South Africans but to the world sure. um, but the the, the, the uh, uh, inability uh, to transform the inequality uh, to deal with poverty unemployment inequality, um, haunts this country uh, together with uh, rampant uh, corruption uh, as well. So I think, I think, uh, and at the same time, um, the wounds of the past keep coming back to bite us, um, and uh, we see that in, 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 in often the scale of anger that is there. Uh, we see it in the scale of domestic family sexual violence uh, yes. as well so so the um so in a, in a way we remain a profoundly wounded country and and i think uh you know our preoccupation as a country should not be with the past it should be with the present and the future but the wounds of the past continue to infect and if we don't mm. uh, continue to deal with them um, we won't be able to uh, transform, and of course, you know, going back to to de Klerk, we 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 still um, have a long way to go in terms of uh, the white community uh, yeah. as well, um, and and an insufficient embracing, uh, not only of sorrow but of apartheid, but a serious commitment to uh, uh, economic transformation and to restitution. I mean, it's interesting to note that one of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a wealth tax, yes, uh, which went down like a lead balloon in the white community. Uh, who might have been well, apartheid wasn't so hot, but but touch our pockets, you know, and 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 also that's indicative that 
um, apartheid was also always about greed uh, as well. And, and, and tragically, in our new order, um, that is also uh, some of the, um, uh, the former oppressed have become part of that greed uh, mm. as well. The, uh, um, that, so that has very serious implications for us as a, as a country. But also, uh, I think, sadly, we became a democracy at a time in world history where capitalism had gone mad. Mm. Um, when all the checks and balances of capitalism had been removed and greed was having its day. And, and that's the context in which we became a democracy. And that hasn't helped us. Um, I suppose one of those things about um, you know, looking forward or being in the present and looking forward is, you know, or not looking back, I suppose it depends on who's not looking back. Or, I mean, do we not have to look back into our past to properly acknowledge a, a, a joint future? Well, I, you see, I suppose uh, healing uh, is, is about integrating the past into who we are. You mm. know, um, that, that, that when we heal, we don't become something we once were before. Mm. We are still there with our wounds but we begin to be at peace with those wounds. And become well. something else. And, and, and that they can also shape the kind of society we, we want to, mm. you know, create. Um, and I think, you, you know, one sees that in how the words of the Constitution, particularly the preface, are crafted. Um, the, the, the commitment we make to bridging the wounds of the past comes out of the acknowledgement of where we've come from as a country mm. uh, as well. So it can't be about, you know, again, it's the opposite of the denialism uh, as well. The, uh, yes. It's, it, 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 indeed, it is about the uh, acknowledgement. And, and, and of course, one of the challenges and the kind of work we do is how do you, how do you um, uh, assist young people to learn about our past in a way that doesn't bore them to death but actually helps them make sense of the world that they're part of mm. and and inspire them to be part of creating something something different. I mean, it's very interesting, some of the conversations with um, the, um, the forelists, uh, some of them, the kind of suggestion that uh, our generation sold out um, and, and it reminds me of, in some ways, the 76th generation hmm. who said to their parents, you know, you call these white people boss and master and madam, we are not going to do that. And didn't sufficiently recognize the pain and suffering and sacrifice that their parents' generation had gone through, even though they, they didn't act in, this, in the same way as this generation. Mm -hmm. So the importance of, uh, uh, which for us as an institute, is why intergenerational conversations are important yeah. as well. Yeah. We need, older people, we need to listen to young people, to their pain and passion. Yeah. But that is in both directions as well. There needs to be an appreciation by young people of the, of the, the sacrifices, and, and even to be inspired by the way in which our generation faced uh, what we faced. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that is quite fascinating. And again, it points, I suppose, to this ongoing legacy or the ongoing psychological, spiritual damage that apartheid or colonialism or however we want to, our history, I suppose, mm. still weighs on our national psyche. Yes, yes. But and I suppose but healing, in a sense, always is we don't have to be prisoners of that. Uh, and that's, mm. I suppose, partly what we represent as an institute, mm. is we don't have to be prisoners of the past. We can, um, we, we, we can find a kind of freedom, if you like, in the Christian imagery in which the, the wounds are still there, but they're no longer bleeding. No, mm. they, 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 are, they are the scars that are part of what we look like. Mm. Um, the, um, but they're no longer full of poison. That's what we need. To, that's the point we need. We need to get to, uh, 
And of course, it's not unique to us as South Africans. Uh, mm. There are many countries in the world are in different places of the journey and, and often the things come back in, in new ways and a, and a you know a new generation uh, to be to be faced again mm. the, uh, I mean if I think of the place of my birth um, the uh, you know this Treaty of Waitangi in 1840 that, that um, sorted out or, 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 or declared what kind of healthy relations between the indigenous people and the white settlers would be. Um, and then it was kind of ignored for, you know, another hundred years. And then only really in the in the 70s and 80s, people began to say, honor the treaty, honor it. So here was this past treaty uh, that suddenly took on a new life and the force of law in order to create a more just society and, mm. and, and help Zealand uh, overcome some of its myths about itself. Uh, and there's a kind of interesting irony that um, 1983, um, the, 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 the rugby tour of um, uh, the Springboks uh, to New Zealand, New Zealand became the yeah. biggest anti-apartheid movement in the world at that point. Yes. But one of the things that also helped lead to was New Zealanders to introspect themselves about their their own relationships mm, mm, and, mm. and race and racism and there. Yeah. So I think there's you know there's the, these intertwining is also yes. uh, important. Because I, I was sort of reflecting on that that you chose to come to South Africa to fight a, a struggle for human rights when I mean, do you ever think that... Well, see, I didn't. That's the point. I chose to go to the monastery. Well, okay. But you, you, but, that's, you see, but, but that's important because, you know, uh, I took a vow of obedience that I mm. would go where the community sent okay. me. Okay, all right. Um, yeah. And, and so I find myself in this, in this mm. uh, you know, in this context. So mm. for me, the issue was about discipleship. But as I said, in my, in my formation, there's this issues of race and racism have been important since I was a child, mm. but also... The relationship between faith and justice yeah. as well. And of course, like you said of yourself, I mean, today, uh, I'm a New Zealand-born South African internationalist. I work all over the world <laughs> yeah. you know, as, as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and become, you know, up until last year, I spent three or four months a year in the United States for many years. Mm. Um, so one becomes very much as a global citizen yes. uh, as well. And, and you begin to have a perspective um, yes, it's grounded in South Africa. It's got Kiwi origins, um, but it's but shaped it's gone. by, and in a sense, shaped by listening to the pain of the human family. Sure, you know, uh, in many ways. Yeah. How do you? I mean, obviously, you have your um, your, your 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 religion to draw upon for strength, but my goodness, I mean, how do you actually? cope with this multitude of stories that you hear all around you? I mean, is prayer enough? I think um, one quotes with most of them by not remembering them. Hmm. Um, but there are, are always some stories in different parts of the world that imprint that uh, particular people I've met where their stories imprint and you, you carry them um, uh, but if I was to hold on to every story, I, I, there's no way I could yeah. uh, could continue. No. Uh, but you see, the stories, some of them are profoundly painful, but they're often incredibly inspiring as well of how people have been able to transcend um, what's happened to them and, and, and continue to live beautiful lives of kindness, generosity, uh, compassion. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's plenty of inspiration as well. And even, uh, you know, you think of uh, it's a dark moment in South Africa at the moment, but there are plenty of people across this country doing amazing things. Sure. I mean, this, the stories, for example, that are coming out of the I'm Staying, mm. uh, quite extraordinary, uh, of, of people acting with generosity, com compassion, commitment to justice in a very local, local level. Mm. Um, and so, so that gives one uh, hope and encouragement. Yeah, because I'm also now just wanting to touch on, you know, you say you've traveled the world and we just, I mean, you look, okay, it's, it seems corny and obvious to mention Donald Trump, but I mean, there's a specific kind of trend now 
not only in the West, I mean, we see it in a number of different countries of this sort of anti-democratic, um, racist, dare I say, uh, discourse that is becoming kind of normalized in countries that in the past you have anticipated being sort of beacons of the opposite. And I'm just wondering how you sort of see that in the, the context, particularly of what we're trying to do in South Africa. I mean, that's well, I th yes, I mean, I think there are very, it's a very dark moment across the planet when whether you think of what Trump represents, what Bolsonaro represents, yeah. what Modi represents, what mm -hmm. Erdogan represents, what, what's the, the guy in, 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 in Hungary. I mean, you can point to so many, and this is across, you know, across the world. Um, yeah. And 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 uh, it's almost like uh, the shadow side we have as a human family is sort of having its day again. Mm -hmm. um, but it also obviously speaks as well to how certain sectors of society have felt excluded, as well. The the way in which uh, formal politics has 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 not delivered for significant parts of many populations in the world. So why are we a right to rail against the, uh, you know, the prejudice and the xenophobia and the racism and the national, nationalism? We also, in a very sober way, need to say, but there's a, there are other things at play that we need to be, uh, you know, conscious of. Um, but I think human history has never been simply sort of linear. I think it's... Uh, you know, we, we, we go forward, we go sideways, we go backwards, we, 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 we pick up on um, and, and move forward in terms of uh, a commitment to being a human family. And of course, the, 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 the uh, contemporary reality of climate change uh, changes everything, you know, because in a way, we're now at risk um, of survival of As the planet. Species, yeah. Um, I, I'm hopeful uh, that the uh, uh, the greatest of the world that the that again the children will save us will save this planet mm. that the the young people are going to come out more and more and more strongly and force the political class and force all of us to take the kind of actions we need to uh, to change how we operate as a as 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 a human family uh, as well, that will change everything about how we live and survive together, because climate it doesn't have it's no respecter of well, color so, or class no. or creed or sexual orientation or yeah, anything. It's yeah. all of us in this. Yeah. So I think that whole uh, issue of um, and again, perhaps recovering what indigenous people always knew that we need to be we need to live with Mother Earth. Uh, in respect, uh, you, you, indigenous people knew that, people like St. Francis of Assisi knew that, but we have to, it's an urgent thing for us to recover that. It's not about us human beings simply dominating, but us human beings being part of Mother Earth and how we live, you know, live with her. Mm. Father Michael, thanks uh, so much for your time today. Pleasure. Fascinating discussion. Thank you. You know, listening to a person speak about the ongoing grief of losing their hands in a bomb attack and um, listening to them speak with such serenity, um, it's quite something, as you can imagine. I'm always obviously listening with, with focus um, in these discussions, but I also have to be considering my next or the direction that I want the discussion to take. So I'm kind of balancing that focus um, with what's next. And sometimes you can hear I do, I do struggle in processing some of the things I'm, I'm hearing as we go. I was struck by what he said about South Africa becoming a democracy just as capitalism had gone mad. And I also like the idea of his intergenerational discussion that's needed um, to understand sort of the experiences of the older generation and the youth at the same time so we can you know try and build a better country for everyone please become a patron and keep this project alive I will be at Africa Podfest in Nairobi next week 
and I uh, do have a couple of lines in the water there trying to get some interviews sorted out so we'll see what comes out of that I'm really looking forward to the event um, meeting people from all over the continent with your support the podcast can travel to all corners of South Africa and beyond so that could be quite a lot of fun Thanks again to Hindenburg for their support. Hindenburg Software is designed for radio journalism and podcasting. It's practical and easy to use. Go to Hindenburg.com for more information and sign up for a free trial. You may subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. Cheers.